Good morning. Would you please stand and take your worship hymnal books and turn to hymn number six here in this place. Thank you. 
the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger out ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved one. With you, I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And the very early on in the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, who will roll the stone away for us when the, for the entrance into the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The beginning, the end of Mark. And there's a lot of stuff that happens in the middle and in between. As we look at encountering Jesus in Mark, it's important to remember that the different Jesuses of the four Gospels portray a different sort of understanding of the Savior, Jesus, or they gave different angles 
to who this Savior was. These Gospels arose out of a particular faith community, and stories were shared, and they had a purpose of telling the good news. And so this morning, um, we have three people who will be uh, sharing a bit of how they encountered Jesus as they, in the last few days, have read through all 16 chapters and have been given the assignment to, in five minutes, highlight what Jesus did you encounter? What things stood out to you? Now, one of the things to understand about the Gospel of Mark, Mark is a very fast-paced, high-dramatic understanding of Jesus or telling of the story. And oftentimes when we listen to the words, it's like we, the readers and the listeners, are in the audience watching a play unfold behind us. And because of the beginning, we know that this Jesus is the Messiah, Savior person, but those in the play itself don't know that yet. And so we watch as they encounter Jesus uh, for their first times. Let's pray together. God, thank you for life. Thank you for this place. Be with the three who will be speaking and sharing and reflecting with us this morning. Amen. Kyle Schlebaugh uh, is a Goshen College graduate and assistant professor of English. Uh, he will be sharing his reflections. And also, Tina Peters is a first-year student, and Jeff Hostetler is a third-year student, and they will also be sharing. I'm grateful for the invitation to reread Mark and reflect on the Jesus that I meet there. I harbor very specific, perhaps even idiosyncratic, affections for each of the gospel narratives. I love the dulcet tones of Matthew's evocation of the kingdom of heaven. I confess to a certain weakness for the grand cosmological sweep of John and for the change the world stridency of Luke. Taken together, the Gospels offer an embarrassment of riches, but I always come back to the parables. And to me, Mark is the Gospel that really foregrounds these crucial and sometimes inscrutable sayings of Jesus. I know there's a wealth of important contemporary scholarship about the different claims to the authorship of the book of Mark. You have your two-source theory and you have your Q document. And that's important knowledge, but to me, um, there's a certain charm, as strictly as a literary matter, uh, to the traditional attribution, which says that the Gospel of Mark uh, is a record of the stories and sayings and deeds of Jesus as recounted by Peter to Mark in Rome many years after the fact. That seems fitting because the text itself presents a Gospel that is all about telling stories. It's a storyteller's Gospel. As a reader, one can in fact be overwhelmed by the nested stories within stories. It can become quite vertigo-inducing uh, to try to uh, follow the different frame narratives in Mark. Look at the story that concludes chapter 5, a girl restored to life and a woman healed. We're not even halfway into the first story when another one literally breaks into the narration. 
Or in chapter 11, where the fig tree is first cursed, and then a parable is taught um, at the foot of the withered tree, and these stories bracket the cleansing of the temple. Uh, Jesus is always saying things like, then he began to speak to them in parables, and let anyone with ears listen. But what do we make of the difficulty of these stories? Mark Twain once famously said, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can understand that bother me. It's the parts that I can understand. And uh, granting the wisdom of that philosophy, I suspect, though, that there are a few, there are a few of us uh, who haven't grappled with the difficulty of the parables, these dense, difficult little nuggets of Jesus' teaching. They are, if you will, little semiotic spiritual pieces of beef jerky uh, we just sort of chew on, and they never, quite, uh, they never quite yield themselves the way we kind of hope they will. Jesus seems to acknowledge as much. Uh, consider chapter 4, verse 10 to 13, which come immediately after the famous parable of the sower. When he was alone, those who were around him, along with the twelve, asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything comes in parables, that they may indeed look, but not perceive, and may indeed listen, but not understand, so that they may not turn again and be forgiven. Do we really have a Jesus who is bent on being intentionally difficult? Who, as my friend and colleague Jason Samuel in the communication department frequently, uh, frequently describes one of his own professors as being deliberately cryptic, arbitrary, and vague? Is that really the Jesus that we see here? I've wrestled with this question for some years now. And the conclusion that I keep returning to is part of my own vocational conviction as an English professor, that all stories are more complex than they first appear, and that the more interesting and important a story is, the more work, the more honest, brow-furrowing, roll-up-your-sleeves effort it takes to understand that story. That understanding is a long and difficult process, and attentive listening is an act of will that's exercised for the heart and mind. Mark reminds us that Jesus seemed to spend at least half his ministry simply gathering crowds, sitting down, telling stories. The Gospel of Mark inspires me to value the power of storytelling, to see my life and my community as a set of stories within stories, and to honor the power of storytelling, to see listening to stories as a sacred obligation. In the age of internet blogs and YouTube, when you can stream newscasts from all over the world at any computer with an internet connection, on a campus where we have dozens of faculty and hundreds of students from literally all over the world, where thousands and tens of thousands of books are never more than a five-minute walk away, where we have dozens of faculty members uh, continually studying stories and parsing stories and helping us understand uh, the stories that we have uh, from history, from our traditions, and from our contemporary communities. And in fact, in a town where you could walk into any bakery or grocery store or restaurant and hear stories in more than one language. I'm grateful for the Jesus of Mark who reminds us that there is no greater imperative in being faithful to Jesus' call than to stop and pay attention to the stories around us. 
Let anyone with ears to hear listen. short stories from the Gospel of Mark and share with you what they helped me to learn. The first is the story of the rich man in chapter 10. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answered him, You know the commandments. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. He replied and said to him, Teacher, all of these I have observed from my youth. Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, You are lacking in one thing. Go, sell what you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At that statement, his face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. This story makes me reflect on how I think of time. Like the young man and all his possessions, I wonder if all the time I own interferes with my relationship with God. I will never have the experience of this young man being called by Jesus face to face. But if there was a need or a call to do something of God, would I get up and go? Or would I say, I'm in school now. I will go after I finish my degree. Our classes and track are keeping me really busy right now, maybe in a couple weeks. Isn't the time given to me to do all these things a gift? When I read this story, I relate to the rich man. I act rich because I think I have all the time in the world. I am young, I can make plans and do many things and rush to get them all done. From classes to track to friends to homework to family. I have free will and the time to spend, just like all of the rich man's property. And like the rich man's property, all of my rushing can keep me from from my focus from what matters. I began to notice the effect, particularly since coming to college. My time was pulled in an incredible number of directions all at once, and it severely limited my time for reflection. My mentor once told me that God is like a good friend. In order to maintain the friendship, you must spend time together. During my first semester, I noticed my spiritual life suffering greatly from a lack of attentiveness to this friendship. I wrote to a good friend of mine about the struggles I was having, and he suggested a simple task. Ten minutes of quiet time alone, every day, just God and me. It is a way to center myself and keep perspective. I try to keep the ownership of all this time from making me lose sight of God. That way, if he does call, I will be able to answer and follow. One more story. This is a story of Jesus calling the storm at sea. On that day, as evening drew on, he said to them, let us cross to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with them. A violent squall came up, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so that it was already filling up. Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a cushion, They woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He woke up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Quiet, be still. The wind ceased, and there was great calm. 
Then he asked them, Why are you terrified? Do you not yet have faith? For me, this is a lesson in faith and trust. Sometimes when I read this, I'm astonished and a little scared by how much Jesus expects from his followers. Just a few chapters before, Simon, Andrew, James, and John left their fishing nets, homes, and family to follow Jesus, a stranger. This is an incredible example of faith. Now they are terrified, and he asks them to trust that he will take care of them, even when it seems there's nothing to be done. Jesus asks for more faith than just following. He asks for courage. The faith Jesus is asking for gets to the essence of living in the midst of fear. What are we afraid of? Am I afraid of changes? Am I afraid of being lonely? Am I afraid of car accidents? Am I afraid of violence? Jesus asks why. He asks for trust and faith. Throughout the gospel, Jesus encourages the disciples and others to trust and not be afraid. It is hard to give up doubts and worry. A good friend of mine is trying to give up worrying for Lent. She'll have to let go of those things that are outside of her control, let go of the preoccupation, and give it to God to handle, to trust and have faith that everything will be all right. That is what God asks of his disciples during the storm. Despite living in the information age, there's a lot of things this world hasn't figured out yet. We are fascinated by mystery, a word, a word derived from Greek meaning to close and referring to the eyes or ears. We have a show on the History Channel called History's Mysteries, and as a history major, I'm required to uh, enjoy it. <laughs> we have Mystery Skateboards, a skateboarding company. There's Mystery Shopping. Scooby-Doo's Mystery Machine, not to be confused with Justin Sider's van. <clears throat> Sarah McLaughlin sings about building a mystery. Or James Bond is an international man of mystery. Or how about Goshen's mystery? Who stole all those dishes, trays, bowls, cups, knives, spoons, and forks from the dining hall last semester? I don't know. In Mark, Jesus is a pretty mysterious guy. As readers, the author reveals to us Jesus' actions, but Jesus says to the crowds, don't tell other people what I've done, as if not to give away his divine being. On top of that, demons uh, whom Jesus releases, won't even, Jesus won't even let him uh, say who he is. In the 16th chapter of Mark also, we have a disputed ending, which certainly remains a mystery to many scholars even today. Mark has some great stories found in other Gospels, such as the healing of the paralytic, the feeding of the 5,000, the parable of the mustard seed, and the healing of the demon-possessed. Still, there is an element of mystery. The characters surrounding Jesus can tell that there is something more about him. Mark does an excellent job of capturing this to the reader. Already knowing the biblical story, I still find it confusing when Jesus tells them that he will soon leave the earth and the disciples just don't get it. Even for me, who supposedly knows the story of the gospel, this text is a mystery. To ancient peoples, mysteries often had to do with something of the divine, which is important when we're looking at this text. One of the mysteries or challenges for me is Jesus' teaching. Lessons we can take from Mark. What does it mean 
to be a follower of Christ on a largely Christian campus? How do we show God's love to others around us? Or how do we share uh, God's message of love to people that already know? How do we look for God's mystery on this campus? Too often we're caught up in schoolwork and, well, not after this weekend, but too often we're caught up in schoolwork with tests and we don't often take time to sit and think and reflect upon what God is doing in our lives. How do I seek God's mystery? I think Tina offered a really good example in taking 10 minutes each day to reflect um, with cell phones and texting and the dangers of texting that we got to see here two weeks ago at Convocation, we learn our lives are so fast-paced, and I think it's important to um, take some time and just be alone. To me, the symbolism between reading about God's mystery and looking for God's mystery remain interlinked. As you go on your way and not only read stories about what God is doing in the Bible, also look for how God interacts with you in this world. In closing, um, as we know, today is the last day of classes, and in the words of Ben Knoll, spring break 07. <laughs> I know that all of you are the remnant group that was forced to stay until your tests were finished. You're not in men's choir, or for some of you, your flight was canceled. I'm not going to mention who that was. Regardless of where you're going, from what I hear, well, from what I hear is mainly Florida, um, I'll say a prayer and blessing, and then we'll sing hymn number 430. God be with you till we meet again as we travel from here. So will you bow your heads with me in prayer? Everlasting God, we come to you to ask your blessing upon us. As we go on our way, please protect us with your guiding hand. Be near to those who are far away and also with those who stay. May we take the wisdom we learned here with us as we go and have us all return safely with renewed minds. Let us remember this season of Lent to keep our focus on the one whose promise is unending, that we may seek God's peace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hymn number 430.